0: Love, talk radio.
1: Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Suttles, and I want to welcome everyone who's in the um, audience today, and thank you for taking time to be with us. Uh, today's program is sponsored by Hiawatha Broadband Communications, which is an FTTP provider committed to connecting rural communities and economies to the world you can check out Hiawatha Broadband at www.hbci.com. We're here to provide useful information and insights to help communities, companies, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband to everywhere it needs to be in America. So we're going to to jump right in here today. Uh, we have um, uh, Jay Overture, uh, who's, who's uh, handling uh, some of the chat room, uh, conversations there, so if you want to check in and you have some uh questions for our guests we'll we'll take those and work those in so our guest today is blair levin and uh Blair has held several uh, uh impressive posts in, in in the past few years, including chief of staff to f c c uh, chairman reed hunt uh from december of ninety three to nineteen ninety seven and uh, however, probably most people that know Blair or know of Blair know him through his role as at the FCC as the Executive Director of the Omnibus Broadband Initiative which is a nice way of saying he helped uh, herd all the cats trying to come together to get the uh, National Broadband Plan uh, a reality. And so,
0: Blair, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Craig. Happy to be and, here.
1: <laughs> I am honored to have you on the show today and i i hope you're okay with the uh... chief ca- cat herder title could i sort of get that right <laughs> <laughs> any of these projects I, actually are...
0: <laughs> i'll tell you a, 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 a true story um... when uh... The then interim cops asked me to do this um... uh... he asked me what he wanted what i wanted the title to be and i said i didn't want one uh... i wanted it to be a verb and he looked at me kind of oddly and said what do you mean And i said i just put out a press release saying that i was coming back to assist um, with the process, and, and and that that really actually is what I was doing. Um, I, I, I'm not sure there's a title that reflects it, and I'm not being um, modest. It's just that when you do a job like that, uh, it's not about the title; it's about the activity.
1: So, well, and it's such a broad. I mean, it was such a broad project to begin with that it's kind of hard to sum up uh, the role. And so you know, it's 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 fine. I mean, there were. Um, We may as well, you know, talk about that for for a moment because I know that most of the people uh, listening into the show have some direct connection with broadband, either from a policy perspective or they're in the states working on various um, broadband projects. Um, How many moving parts was there to that whole whole project? I mean, who was, you know, what kind of people were involved? And did you have like several subcommittees?
0: Well, uh, just by way of background. When the uh, Recovery Act was being drafted, it became clear that uh, there weren't going to be sufficient funds to do everything that that we as a country would love to do uh, in the area of broadband, and also that the kinds of things that the government might consider funding weren't really on the table. Um, It is a very rare thing for the government to suddenly decide that it's going to fund a new tranche of what we might think of as capital projects. In the case of roads and bridges and traditional um, infrastructure funded by the federal government, there is a list of projects uh, to be funded, but that's not the case for broadband. So as that as the Recovery Act was, was being drafted, it was thought that it would be a good idea to actually have a plan for what are the things that we ought to think about the government funding. But moreover, what's a good plan for the United States um, to, depending on how you think about it, establish, -establish, reestablish, recapture its role as the world leader in broadband. And so the Recovery Act asked the FCC to do a plan, and it's really quite an extraordinary mandate because um, it asked the FCC not just to look at traditional FCC issues, how do we get networks everywhere, uh, it went beyond that to say, how do we get everyone on? And then it said, and how do we use broadband better to deliver healthcare, education, public safety? Um, actually, I think there were 12 enumerated categories, plus a and anything else where it would serve the public interest. So it was a very broad mandate. Um, uh, the Congress gave the FCC one year to do it. Uh, About three months after that, the the trigger date, uh, I was called in by then acting uh, chairman cops and asked whether I would do it, and uh, um, I I said yes immediately just because the time was already wasting. Uh, We brought in, uh, I can't remember the the right number, between 60 and 70 folks from the outside uh, to work on the plan. In addition, several hundred other people who were at the commission worked on it. Um, and over that relatively short period of time delivered a plan um, that, um, you know, it's up on the web, www.broadband.gov. And um, the most important thing about it is that uh, the plan is in beta and always will be, that we put out a lot of good ideas, I think. But uh, the real purpose of it is to both set targets for us to try to shoot at, uh, but I mean that in two ways. One is that kind of how do we get there, but also uh, let people like yourselves and other listeners say, hey, that's, I got a better idea for how to achieve that goal. And so it really defines the debate. Mm-hmm. And it's now defined the debate in spectrum and in universal service and in healthcare applications and education and a bunch of other things. So We feel very good about that.
1: Right, okay. So it was definitely a, uh, a long dance, but an interesting dance and uh, one that Seems to have caught a lot of people's attention, and, uh, and and all of these have have worked out for the good. I'm guessing in the in, in the long run. I mean, there were bumps and there were trials, and there are, there are going to still be trials. But you know, a lot of this, a lot of things are moving forward, and definitely a lot of projects that would not have come to be have have right. come into place. And so that leads really i guess to the um you know to the current initiative the university community next generation innovation project or right. short <laughs> short version Gig gig.u so, oh, yes uh, yeah also we do include the dot sorry gig.u right. so how did you get from okay the broadband plan is finished in its you know and its launch at least how did you get from there to here
0: so after uh, I, I thought it was appropriate for me to leave the FCC as soon as the plan was finished or as quickly as I possibly could, um, because we had we had done what Congress asked, and it was um, you know now was the time for the FCC and others to implement. So I came to the Aspen Institute, which gave me an opportunity to think. Um, in a more, shall we say, relaxed manner about a number of issues. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you think about it the way I thought about it, which is kind of what were some key areas where the government needed to act or where the country needed to act um, to make sure that we uh, really are the broadband leaders in the future. A number of them had uh, initiatives throughout the government, which, you know, I, I on, on background I talked to various people about, but I'm not really a player in it. Uh, for example, uh, how do you get networks everywhere? We, we still have a situation where there are about seven million homes that don't have broadband. Well, that's universal service reform. Um, how do you get everybody on? That's uh, we have about 100 million Americans who who have access to broadband but don't um, aren't taking it. Uh, that's the adoption problem. Um, how do we use broadband better? Uh, we have a lot of thoughts about how to use broadband better to deliver education, healthcare. Etc. and the government's doing these things. I'm I'm still involved in some ways in all of those, but there was one issue that I thought was very, very important that the government was not likely to take action on that I thought, uh, or at least I thought the government was likely to take action on. It's a longer-term play, but it's very, very important, and it's actually in the research and development uh, section of the plan. And what what we note is that it's really important that the country have Um, a critical mass of test beds for next-generation networks. And the reason why that's important is it's important that we we have people who know how to build those networks. It's important that we have people that know how to operate those networks. It's important that we have people who know how to develop those networks. But most important, we want to develop the next generation of applications here in the United States. We want to do what we did with the first generation of the Internet, which, by the way, the reason we have, you know, the iconic uh, Internet companies in the United States, whether you think of it as Google or Facebook or Microsoft or Intel or Qualcomm or, you know, there are so many companies in the United States that essentially are world leaders, both uh, kind of on the chip side, on the server and router side, like a Cisco, on the application side. It's really because of things that we did in this country in the 70s and the 80s and somewhat in the 90s. But these things, you build up these ecosystems over time. What we see happening in the world is all other places in the world are building out networks that have higher capacity than we have. Now, from a mass market perspective, I'm not worried about that. But from a research and development perspective, I'm worried that we don't have enough, we don't have those critical Uh, that critical mass of communities. So I was thinking about that problem, and at the same time, you know, uh, thankfully the Google Fiber Initiative was moving forward, and that initiative actually, uh, Google really thought of it, they deserve all the credit, but I actually had some conversations with Eric Schmidt about it um, during the broadband plan process, Um, but I was thinking about the incredible work that 1,100 communities had done uh, to self-organize, to make it, more viable to build gigabit networks uh in the uh, in the United States. And I was thinking, Gee, it's a shame that all these communities did all this work and only one of them or a couple of them are going to be selected. How can we utilize that work? And that work what that work says to me is not that there's a big customer for gigabit connectivity today, but it says that there's that there are many communities in the United States who really want to be part of this process of creating the future and building the future. And that's a great thing, and we ought to take advantage of of that um, that desire and the work that they did. So then I started thinking about, well, which communities would it be easiest to do it in? Where's the low-lying fruit here? And those would be communities where you had the lowest cost of deployment because you have high-density pre-existing assets uh, and also high-demonstrated demand. And now there's a set of communities, I'll tell you which they are in a second, though you probably already know this, uh, that meet that. But there's a second question, which is, in which communities are we more likely to see innovation? That is, they're not simply going to consume bandwidth. They're going to create on top of that bandwidth. And they're going to create some interesting internet applications, but they're also going to do interesting things on healthcare and education, in manufacturing, in agriculture, and whatever. Which are the communities that have those kind of innovators uh, highly concentrated? Well, the nice thing is the answers to question one and two are the same. It's university towns. And so then I said, well, let's take a look at the university towns that applied for Google Fiber and didn't get it. And I started talking to a variety of people. Um, And it turns out that a lot of the universities themselves want to get higher connectivity. They have great connectivity on campus in an institutional way, but they'd love to have that same kind of connectivity in their communities. It would be great if the astrophysicist um, who works at the University of North Carolina had access to the same kind of experience in his home right off of campus Uh, on Macaulay Street, um, you know, as he does in his office. It'd be great if the doctor uh, at the University of Michigan uh, Hospital um, had access to look at our MRIs in in his or her home in Ann Arbor. So from that, uh, from those streams, the National Broadband Plan desire for critical test beds, from the work that the communities did on the Google Fiber Initiative, from the desire of universities to have – a broader um high bandwidth experience in their communities the gig.u project was born.
1: Mhm. And this seems like a logical progression in that um you've identified um areas uh the areas have identified themselves so obviously if you've gone to a certain extent of effort then you're going to be more compelled to be a, to be a player in this um so is the purpose of gig.u to um to facilitate to identify to actually get in there and roll up the sleeves and and work with these uh different communities or how is that going to how is that going to unfold
0: well what we're really doing in the gig.u um think of it this way there are two propositions that i think everyone agrees with number 1 that america needs the critical mass of test beds for next generation connectivity, and secondly, that university communities are the best targets uh, as a category uh, for those test beds. And, and since we've launched in late July, I've had numerous discussions with lots of people. No one argues with those two kind of essential propositions. So then the question is, how do we actually do it? <laughs> how do we create those test beds? Right. And I think we can put aside um, the notion that we can get the government to fund them. Okay. So, so we're going to have to come up with a different strategy. I mean, one can argue about whether or not that um that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think anyone who watched the news of the summer um would realize that kind of it's it's difficult to do new initiatives uh in the context of the federal government or even state and local governments right now uh, which is fine so let's try to let's try to do this with the private sector uh resources so what our idea is is to pull together, we've already pulled together a critical mass of universities and communities, Um, and our idea is to put out a request for information, which we will do in mid-September, in which these communities say to both current and potential service providers, here's who we are, Um, here's a lot of information about us, which by the way the communities have already really gathered because of the Google Fiber Initiative. and then ask a series of questions about how should we think about um, helping you be in a position to invest more into our communities um, uh, to give us an option for gigabit connectivity that can serve our homes, our schools, our healthcare facilities, our um, our government facilities, etc. And that's the dialogue that I think can be you know if we if everyone goes into it with the right Um, right frame of mind can be very, very constructive and hopefully will be very creative and will come up with new ways of solving this problem. We all should acknowledge that there is essentially a private investment gap. That is to say, if the cost of deployment already met the revenues generated by demand, the market would on its own do this. There's always a problem, kind of investing into the future, and so we have this chicken and egg problem of you can't get the applications without the networks, you can't get the networks without the applications. And so our notion is through a kind of focused, thoughtful dialogue between the best targets for the investment and the most likely candidates to make the investment, we will come up with other creative solutions. And actually, I'm I'm not going to talk about those, but already in the discussions, people are throwing out ideas that I think are very creative. And uh, could help in this experimental uh, effort.
1: Would it not make sense, though? Okay, so the, the the two premises. Okay, we need to have test beds for gigabit applications.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I definitely agree with. In fact, I had a conversation with um, uh, one of the um, writer editors over at GigaOm uh, about uh, this issue of there are people who have great applications but they don't have the bandwidth in order to make those a reality you know they all they're already thinking ahead of the curve um, so the the test beds make sense the universities as a sort of nucleus for test beds makes sense because they have you know a variety of apparatus or apparatus whatever in place to facilitate you know the experimentation and the the testing and bringing the minds together and all of that But would it not also be beneficial to look at this as these could be the stepping-off points for um, getting greater coverage across the U.S.? In other words, it's not to downgrade the first two points, because the first two points are very valid. But if I, on top of that, say, okay, well, if I've got 25 of these um, spots that are going to be pushing the envelope, should we not also push the envelope in uh, deployment issues and adoption issues? And, and how can we make those not just a hub within their, you know, the surrounding, the areas surrounding the campus, but the, the city or the town or whatever in total?
0: the city or the town? But
1: in other words, there's a concept or maybe there's an impression that if I have, if, I, if I'm if i one of the colleges involved in Gig U, it's going to involve the campus and some X number of blocks, you know, around that campus. As yeah. a, and, and so the logical, my logical step would be to say, like, take Berkeley up. I mean, I know it's not on the list, but Berkeley, right. I went right. there, so I know the terrain. So I would right. say, you know, a Cal, if Cal were a Gig U member, you know, then I would look at the the project as not only creating the test bed, but you know, let's try to figure out a way to get broadband for the entire city of Berkeley or the five communities all adjacent to Berkeley and some of which some of which are low income and, and so forth and so on. In other words sure. it's, it's expanded thinking. I guess that's what I'm driving. Well
0: look, Greg, um uh let me just make two observations. First, you totally crack me up, and I I, I say that with great affection. Um, Here I am trying to solve a problem uh, that is a very significant problem, and you say to me, while you're solving that problem, why don't you solve six other problems? Um, I appreciate the impulse, but I would say to you that, you know, from my experience and a variety of different factors, that if you take your... um, Take your eye off the ball, you you risk solving nothing. So, in the first instance, I just want to say that I want to try to solve the problem of how do we get world-leading networks to a critical mass of communities. Now, as to the as to your second point, I I do agree that as you're trying to do these things, if you can solve more than one problem at a time, I'm totally for it. But in this regard, I would I, you know I'd urge you to take a look at well the the, the RFI. Uh, will be absolutely public and I think that everybody who's y- you and everyone else who's listening should feel that if they have a better idea for either an individual community or for the project nationally about how to do it, great. You know, I'm I'm all for it. Uh best idea wins. Uh but I w but I want to make sure that look you know, c- the issue of how do we deploy everywhere is a very difficult problem. The FCC is grappling with it. You and I have chatted about it over time. Uh, that's that's going to be um, I, I think the need to make sure that every American has access to a baseline of broadband is a very important um, problem. The government spends a very significant amount of money every year to solve that problem. Whether they're doing it well or not is a good question. We wrote extensively about that in the plan because, in fact, we don't think the government is doing well. Um, The question of how do we get everybody on, the adoption thing, very complicated. Um, We made a bunch of proposals in the plan, and actually I gave a speech a year after the plan criticizing our own work because the more I thought about it, the more I thought that we hadn't adequately done it, which is not a criticism of the team that put that part of the plan together. Rather, I think it was a function of my own failure to really um, uh, think about it appropriately and the fact that we were very, very rushed. Uh, we had very, very limited time and over time certain other things became clear. But but let's not let's not miss the very specific problem that we're trying to solve here with gig.u, which is how do we have world leading um networks in a critical mass of communities? Let's put it this way. I'll be happy if I can help help move the ball forward on that, if we can do a lot more. Um, you know, I want to hit a home run. You want me to hit a grand slam home run i 'm all for it, <laughs> but, well, no, you know, it but right not... now i 'm not sure i got anybody on base
1: right well let me uh, let me say that it 's not so much I expect gig you to do that bigger picture it 's yeah. more a case of you have a, a mission and a focus and it 's clearly defined, and that makes sense to me. My question is is not so much should gig you take this broader picture, but should a community that looks at this go? Okay, here comes Gig You and this offers this opportunity. And I would say, you know, to the community, can you think of a bigger picture? You know, can you see this as part of a bigger whole? So yeah. it doesn't change your mission. It's more right. of I'm saying to the to the to the world at large who's listening about Gig You, okay, this is their mission. Right? they wanna they wanna bring these test beds, and these have values in and of themselves, and they should be pursued but it's like the guy that I talked to uh I forget which one of my guests where we talked about they um they took advantage of one program and they went off and they found a second program and a third program and so in stringing several different programs together from groups that had you know a singular mission, they were able to create a quilt, if you will. That addressed a broader series of needs, so it doesn't it doesn't cripple the, um, the any one entity by trying to do too much. It just says that we, as a community, will look at this a little bit differently, so that we can weave all of these together to a grander to the grand slam, if you will.
0: Well, well look at the at the end of the day, uh, Gig U creates a platform for a focused and thoughtful conversation about next generation networks between communities and potential providers. Mm-hmm. But it is the communities themselves that will make the decisions. In other words, we're going to do this request for information. The whole purpose of it is to give the communities enough information about what the art of the possible is for them to then do a request for proposals. And that would be in the first part of uh, next year. So that. You know, it could be a, a Chapel Hill may look at it differently than Charlottesville, or they may look at it the same way and 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 want a joint bid. Uh, they may look at it differently than, than Ann Arbor, or or, or a Blacksburg, Virginia, or a Fort Collins, Colorado, or um, Bozeman, Montana. So it's this is I I absolutely urge everyone to say how can we? Uh, these are great communities. You know, they're great engines of innovation. They're great drivers of jobs um there's there's in a in a time when um there's both a psychological and an economic um kind of despair in our country these are communities that by and large are doing well because they're uh attracting a kind of very energetic very well educated um very innovative group of folks um if there's if there's a way to do what you're saying boy I I think that's great Uh, And I think, you know, I give Google a lot of credit for kind of sparking that sensibility in a lot of folks. Um, You know, we all watched as Topeka volunteered to change their name or the mayor of some town in Minnesota jumped into the water to demonstrate their commitment. Those were all good PR. But the really interesting part was the work that was done to bring the community together to say we're willing to do a lot of different things it's to get that platform that's so meaningful for the future uh, of our community,
1: right? And one of my observations of uh, you know different people, like I went down to Chattanooga and talked to a lot of their folks there, and they remind me of um, what would be a good um, you know continuation of the of the gig dot model. Which is they—they are very engaged with their university. There and there's like several of them, right? Right. um, They're—they're—they're—they're smaller community colleges and so forth, and but they have this whole thing of weaving them in with several other agencies, organizations, and so forth, and that seems to work. And then I'm doing a survey of economic development professionals, and we're talking about how broadband can impact. Oh uh local local economies. And one of the points made by uh one of the respondents was, you know, we like he was referring to the B tops so there. We like this program where we saw a failure of was the connecting to other things. And it's probably will you know, when you guys do the RFI um and as you continue to talk about this and speak about this, this will become more apparent to folks that this should be part of of a bigger whole, and, you know, and we support the Gig.U effort because it is, you know, probably going to be a very good catalyst, I guess, is the the basic bottom line behind all of this. So now if I look at this... No, in- that's
0: that's exactly right. Uh, th- this is very much designed to kind of continue that work of catalyzing the community, and and I completely agree with you. This requires a community effort. That's That's really what it's going to take uh certainly commend what they've been doing in Chattanooga. Um, but I think there are a variety of different approaches that uh, different communities can take, and we've been really excited about uh, how communities have reacted to what we've been doing so far. An- another example, I mean, uh, Chattanooga is one kind of model. Cleveland and what Case Western has done with their one community and their beta block is an- another example. Um, but I think in both cases, if you talk to people, they would say, This is good. It's a good start. But if we had 20, 30, 40 of these kind of communities, and then you had them kind of connecting to each other with super high speed, uh, then you really start to get the ball rolling, and that's what we hope to do.
1: Mm -hmm. So if you were to move to an advisory uh, mode here for a second, um, take any one typical city, how would you recommend they – Approach this. I mean, there's an RFI coming out. So you say right. first, what you you apply to the RFI? Do you, you know, do you call a meeting of, of stakeholders? Do you, I mean, what are some, to you, logical first three or four steps that, you know, people listening to this should latch on to to really lift this thing up off the ground?
0: Um, uh Well, first of all, I would say that, you know, we are very focused on a particular kind of community because we think there are some unique attributes to that community um, that mean there's a commonality of approach. We are focused on the research universities, and so um, I, I don't mean that, you know, other people are, you know, we don't care about them. I'm just saying that that's, that's what we're really doing here. So we've got 30-plus research universities and their communities engaged in this. So um, so the first thing is if you are living in a community with a research institution and the community and the university want to do this together, then just contact me. But time is short in terms of this part of the project, right, because we want to get an RFI out which requires information about all these communities and we want to get that out in September which basically means we're, we're just we're a week or two away from just saying hey we we've got our members we've just got to go with that group and that's mm-hmm. that, that's what we're doing now as to what the community should be doing is um uh we, we have the, some committees and we have a series of calls and uh we'll have a meeting in Chicago uh late in September and where we pull everyone in a room together and talk about it but it's really precisely the kind of thing that you're doing it's you're pulling together the anchor institutions it's pulling together um the the city government to think about what their needs are uh it's it's looking at for example the Google Kansas City agreement which uh it's very interesting what the city agreed to uh which in my view did not cost the city much but but kind of reformed the way they thought about rights of way and uh, access to certain facilities and a way to make the cost of Google's deployment much less. Um, but there, you know, I, there are so many different things a city can do um, uh, to drive that, and I think that's, you know, all for the good.
1: Are these uh, there were 29 um, members? Are these both? There
0: were 29 at the time that we launched. Uh, we're now in the mid 30s.
1: Oh, okay. Is this like an ever increasing number? I mean, it, it really
0: isn't ever increasing. I, I um, uh, we were in conversations with a bunch of folks. Our, our view, uh, starting out, was we want a critical mass. There's no magic number. Mm-hmm. Uh, but frankly, I felt that, um, roughly speaking, between 15 and 20 was. Uh, I didn't want to launch unless I felt comfortable that we had that uh, that number when we got that number we said okay now let's prepare the launch by the time we actually did the launch we were at 29 uh, actually, we started talking in the New York Times. We're at 28. By the, a couple of days later when we launched, it was 29. It's now mid-30s. There are a few other communities. Uh, we, we're certainly well beyond what we think of w- 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 that we need to do to accomplish our mission. And hopefully, if we're successful, we'll create a model for other communities, though I do think there's a value to the initial members in terms of what they'll know and in they're interfacing with potential service providers. Um but you know the the membership is still open, but it's go, we're gonna have to um, we're, we're gonna have to um, uh, kind of go with what we've got when we do the RFP uh, the RFI, and that'll be the the like, what you, if you will the kind of the membership.
1: But then that's gonna be capped at that point. I guess that's what I'm also well capped
0: is not. I don't. It's just that you know at some point you've got to say to the service providers here are the communities that have expressed an interest and talking to you about how do they become gigabit communities. I mean, right. any individual community can at any time do what we're doing. We believe, and I feel pretty confident we're right about this, there is significant value to each of the universities and the communities in engaging in collective action at this part of the process. Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, if an individual, if Chapel Hill had come out and said, hey, we'd like a gig, we didn't get it from uh, Google, but we'd still like a gig, I'm not sure they would have attracted the attention of their existing service providers or a new service provider. When we came out and said, "Hey, we've got 28 communities, 29, 30, whatever," I can assure you that all the service providers, and we talked to them a bit before, they they stood up and said, "Oh my God, well, you know, what's what's the opportunity here? What are we really looking at?" Furthermore, you know the cost of running uh, a process that evaluates different options, um, by doing this collectively everybody saves a lot of money, everybody saves a lot of time. It may be that in the request for proposals that various communities also think that there's benefit of uh, collective action. It may be that the service providers, and uh, again, I don't want to talk about individual ones with whom I've had um, the conversations about business models and technology and stuff, it may be that service providers say i 'd like to do this, but I need a certain minimum of communities because there are certain economies of scale that I need so this is um, this is about how do we very creatively but also very flexibly drive a process that has gets the benefits of collective action. Well, not binding people together uh into uh into a situation they don't want to be bound into.
1: Now are the are the communities a mix of urban and rural, small and yes. large communities? Okay, so yes. there are some It's very
0: diverse. Across. We're in we're in over 20 states. We have um uh we have a lot of traditional college towns, the Ann Arbors, the Charlottesville's, the Chapel Hills. We have rural areas like Champaign Urbana, like Montana, like New Mexico. We have Uh, urban areas like Seattle, Chicago, Washington, D.C., very consciously tried to get a diversity. Because I think in terms of creating models, that's also really important for the country.
1: Right. So I I have to ask the question, doesn't – there seems to be a dependency on – the private sector as a um, as a determining factor on how this proceeds. You know, what what do the providers want? Are they interested in? in you know, do they need economies of scale and and so forth? Mm-hmm. Um, wouldn't it be better to, um, to to take the focus that let the communities sort out which way they want to go? Because that's not necessarily. Mis- Actually, let me try this a different way. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting off track. What I mean is. In my view, the larger companies cherry picking and all the various things that tend to lead to um, the problems, or some of the problems that we have in broadband, are best solved if the community could get control of the process and look at a range of solutions, not just the provider side, Mm -hmm. at least particularly the larger providers. And so is this going to, in some way, I don't know, facilitate that, I mean, drive people toward public-private partnerships? Um, It's just I know when I read the New York Times article, you know, the impression was, well, the incumbents are going to be like a gating factor. And I think that's what prompted uh, the the commentary from Chris Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, that, you know, if a program is built on the assumption that the incumbents are a linchpin – then we potentially have a problem because they're going to view this as competition.
0: Yeah. Look, I, I, first of all, I, I deeply respect Chris, and I've chatted with him about this, and I, I respect his point of view. I think we we disagree in part, um, uh, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, his view, and if I get this wrong, I'm sure he will correct me, is that this is fundamentally, and I, I think you may share this view, that broadband is a fundamental infrastructure like Uh, like water, like power, and that um, like roads, and they ought to be um, essentially uh, public. That is to say, the government should invest in them, the government should operate them for the benefit of all. Um, I think everyone in the country agrees on roads. I think... um, uh i i think you, one can debate energy and um and water and sewer uh but when it comes to communications for the most part our country has chosen the route that it's uh that should be privately funded privately operated there are certain kinds of uh pro competition rules that are in place and there are certain kinds of public interest obligations if you will on each of the different providers In my view, in terms of the Gig.U project, we are comfortable moving with uh, moving forward with the traditional way we do these things in the U.S. And if people want to say, well, yeah, but you're really missing the boat here because these really ought to be a network like this ought to be publicly owned and publicly funded, I would say, well, look, I mean, it's perfectly fine to have that debate, but right now, at this moment in time, if we want to get a critical mass of test beds uh we are we're going to probably in my view be relying on um private investment if we don't succeed then it raises an interesting question of what we should do because part of the problem and i think everyone uh, analytically would agree to this there you know we rely on the private sector but there's a huge public benefit but sometimes they don't quite match up right i mean from the public perspective we would want certain things and it doesn't quite match up to the private. And then, you know, you get these various debates about um, uh, should should companies be forced to offer kind of a low-cost entry to improve adoption or something like that. And reasonable minds can differ about those kinds of things. I'm just saying that, you know, uh, we certainly, we don't want to cut off the idea that someone has that says, uh, well, wait a minute, you should just rely on public funds. But I, But I have to tell you, and i'm and I know I'm speaking for the vast majority of both the communities and the universities that are that are members um, We really look at this as we are hopeful and optimistic that uh if we can think creatively, we can stimulate the private dollars to move forward, and that's the best way to move forward at this point in time. If it turns out we don't well then we'll 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 see where we are we'll see how large the gap is.
1: But are these communities prevented from moving down a path of public-private partnership or public Absolutely ownership?
0: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay. No. No. We. No one is. Uh, we are bound together in running this process, but we're not legally bound together in terms of uh, any particular approach that any community wants to make. And, and I think you know, um, different communities, you know. Uh, we're all the way from the University of Hawaii and the University of Alaska to you know University of Maryland and College Park and Penn State, and the, each community is going to look at it differently. And if if there's a community that thinks, you know, they really want to, if, if something comes up that causes them to think that they want to do it themselves, they're, you know, unless there's a state law restricting them, we're certainly not restricting them.
1: Option,
0: right, we really want to get to this kind of best idea wins, but with the understanding that there may be different philosophical um, approaches uh, involved. Mm-hmm.
1: Let me take a half uh, second here to say that um, if there's anyone interested in calling in uh, with a question, our call in number is 323 679 0845. This is sort of a tricky one to, to bring up. I know that you <laughs> And by the way,
0: I guess I should I guess I should say I I, I want to be clear about y- you and I probably disagree on this one. That's okay. Uh, I suspect this will be a debate that will go on for a long time, and I think it's a debate that both goes to kind of personal history and experience. And, and I might note, by the way, that I was I used to be a municipal bond lawyer. And strongly believe in the rights of local governments to do what they think is in the best interests of their folks. But, but when it actually comes to making the kinds of investments that a local government would have to make, you and I may may see it differently. Um, but in, but in any event, I think that's a great debate to have. I don't at all mind having that debate right I, but but i do want to emphasize that i think um cuz we 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 talked about this with uh the communities i think they really do feel strongly that if we can find a way to uh accelerate and stimulate private investment they're all they're all more comfortable with that
1: right and see my perspective is that um it is opening up the floor for options more so than there has to be public financing as a counterpoint. It's more that you know I look at different communities doing different things, so for example, in upstate New York, several counties came to Corning right mm-hmm. so Corning is not in the in the telecom business other than to provide plumbing for it, but they're very at-
0: heavily in the telecom business. Well, uh,
1: I, mean, I, should but, but, that. I mean, you
0: can describe it as plumbing, and that's, that's true, but I'm just saying they're,
1: they're not a service provider.
0: They're not a service provider. That's exactly right. But, right. They're, but they, what they they sell so, a lot.
1: Right. No, no, I, mean, I didn't mean to just downplay that. But what they did was they found it in their business interest to uh, contribute money to building out a network. And mm-hmm. there are other places, I think there's another place in, in New York where – the community got together and had a, the, the equivalent of a bake sale. They raised money for the local service provider to enable that service provider to build out um, a fiber network. And there are many variations on public-private partnerships of communities doing it alone, communities doing it in conjunction with other communities or with the private sector. And so I generally tend to couch a lot of these discussions with, you know, here is this opportunity. And rather than to say that it should be driven by the private sector as sort of my first, uh, you know, position, it's usually my first position is I think the, the community should figure out what makes sense for them and that um, and the way that we don't want to have them be vulnerable to uh, someone that decides they want to go into a monopolistic, you know, circle the wagons mode. I would be more inclined to say, you know, reach out to your local businesses reach out to the local carriers make sure that there are processes in place by which a regional telco can partner if they're if they're so inclined with the community and the community can uh you know pursue that partnership and what i'm hearing you say is yes that is that is an option that is an option on the table that people can come up with as many different creative ways of supporting this as they, the community, can think of, but you, you, as you, Blair, have a very um, firm commitment to the the value of the incumbents being a leader in the process. Did I kind of state that right? I mean, I, I, I think, think you did. got it.
0: You got it right up until the last part because it really isn't about me, and it's not about my philosophy. Well, okay, all right. It's about. It's about. This is a platform which was the result of. A lot of conversations with a lot of different people. And I represent, and and hopefully do it, um, uh, you know, sometimes I'll get it wrong, but but hopefully I'll get it right most of the time. I represent a group of communities uh, and, and universities in trying to create a platform that helps them. And what they've told me in, is that they really want, uh, they would really like this, and they want to... Uh, and this, by this, I mean you know, next generation world-leading networks. They'd really like to have them in their communities. They're willing to do a number of things to facilitate that. They're willing to think creatively and attend meetings and talk to their businesses and do all the things that you talked about. But I don't think they want to own and operate networks. Now, it may turn out that that's a better option. I'd, I, I'm I'm skeptical that that will be true. Um, but I don't dismiss it. And I want to be, this part, I want to be really clear on. I don't prejudge any um, uh, outcome. That's the whole point of having a process. The process reveals it. You know, I I remember when I got to the FCC in the early 90s, um, one of the tasks that uh, Chairman Hunt had to deal with very, very quickly was how do you design an auction for Spectrum? And most people don't realize this, but the traditional way of auctioning something like you know auctioning art uh was what was being we were being told that you just go ahead and you auction you know some stuff up in Maine and then you auction some stuff in southern Maine and then you auction some stuff in New Hampshire and then you auction you know that's a traditional auction. How much have I bid for this <coughs> this market well, for a variety of reasons, Reed chose to utilize a technique that had never been done before, which is simultaneous multi-round auctions, where you auction everything at the same time, but in multiple rounds. Uh, and there's a lot of difficulties in, in structuring that, uh, and we use a lot of game theorists, and by the way, this the fundamental game theory behind it was that which was developed by the uh, the, the professor who was the subject of the movie, the movie A Beautiful Mind, which meant, by the way, when they won the Academy Award, it was the first and I suspect only movie in which the FCC was mentioned, uh, which won an Academy Award. Uh, the but, but one of the things I learned about it was that whereas lots of people would tell me things about what would be the outcome, it's the auction that reveals the outcome and this is a process which is going to reveal we hope the best way to do it. We're trying to not put any constraints on anybody, any potential service provider, any potential technology, any potential community as to how best to accomplish the mission. Mission right. is simple, mission is clear. Best idea should win.
1: Right. And I I think a lot of folks will uh will agree with that. There are many roads to Rome and, and we just got to figure right. out um, which one of those makes sense? Now, I don't. I know that you don't want to distract from the mission of Gig. U. Um, at the same time, there is um, uh, the, the, there is an issue of uh, USF reform, and mm-hmm. that people are trying to grapple with, and, and that you have a lot of knowledge about. Mm-hmm. And I want to try to get some of that knowledge of some of the basics. So that people have a better understanding of, sure. of this, because I think that what you know, cause I look at the gigu um, model, if you will, you know, ter- turning universities into test beds, and from that a multitude of things can happen. And you know, I, one of my one of my first thoughts was, well, could this not be part of the reform that happens to to USF? That USF somehow facilitates this kind of activity. Uh, within
0: communities. I mean, um, well, let me let me just step back and say that fundamentally there are three universal service programs. Uh, the, the first one, and where most of the money goes, is what's called the high cost fund, mm-hmm. and that is to help both both the capital expenditures and the operating expenses. Uh, telephone, generally, telephone companies. Almost all telephone companies, uh, traditional copper telephone companies, um, build and operate networks in places where the market by themselves would not make it possible to uh, build those networks so it's largely urban areas i'm sorry rural areas mm-hmm. okay so that's that's a little bit more than fifty percent of the eight plus billion dollars we spend every year. Um, the second largest program is the e rate. But it really should be thought of as anchor institutions. It's largely schools, but it's also healthcare, And it's to provide support for those uh, institutions um, to receive um, yeah. essentially a subsidy for connectivity and a lot of good reasons for doing that. The third um, category is to help low-income people be able to afford uh, a phone and a service. Um, The first and the third programs have to be refined or reformed to move toward broadband. We can chat about that. Your question really is should some part of universal service be allocated to essentially uh, an innovation lab? Um, And I would say if you know, I were king of the world, there's no doubt that I would like that because <laughs> I think it's really important, uh, and I would make that reallocation. But I, but I have to tell you that right now the principal task of the FCC is to reform the system, and, and so that you know, number one, we finish the job of making sure there are broadband, baseline broadband networks everywhere in the country, um, and number two that we get everybody on, and number three that. Those anchor institutions, like I said, schools and hospitals, uh, continue to get support. I would actually argue that they probably need more support because the upside to putting them on networks capable of doing two-way video uh, is much higher for the the country than, at least in my view, and a lot of people will disagree with this, than some of the subsidies we do in the high-cost areas. That really are going to individual homes, but but I but I appreciate that the FCC's mandate and what what they need to do right now is really focus on the kind of reforming the existing. Uh, I think it's I think it would be great if there were government, if there were just very focused small government support for these kinds of innovations, um, but I don't see that happening in this area of reform.
1: Okay, so let's maybe step it back even further. I think one of my issues uh, I think is helping people understand the nature of the reform because I don't think people understand all the mechanics that go on because it confuses people. I mean just plain and simple it confuses people. The clar- I'm pretty sure
0: there are only 12 people in the country who actually really understand uh, how universal service and care compensation work and I'm not one of them. That, I understand that, more than that, most people but uh, it, it is really complicated.
1: It's true, and then that's one of the things that I would hope to come out from this this particular interview is maybe a better understanding of that because some of the other questions that stem off of that might make more sense. So, for example, if I take it as a starting point, the average person probably gets the idea that out of their phone bill some percentage of money um, goes into a big fund, and the big fund originally was designed to uh, help get telephones Uh, service out to rural areas and to also help uh, low-income folks, regardless of where they were, urban or rural, get telephone service, right? Mm -hmm. And so this money sits there. Uh, It is collected by the telephone companies, whoever sends you the telephone bill, by authority of the government, and then the government has a managing role in where that money goes, however loosely or closely they do that. So what exactly then is going to be reformed what what's what's happening out there that um that all this back and forth is going on to try to resolve what are we talking about here
0: yeah well i think we're talking about a number of things some of them are structural and some of them are priorities okay um you know for example right now we fund um a number of mobile phone providers um uh and that actually goes to a program that I was involved in back in the 90s and I think it was um I think it made a lot of sense at the time uh I think that as time has gone on and the economics of uh m- m- mobile phones has uh has improved and the market has certainly improved um we now have you know very significant coverage um of, of of mobility, and uh, I think that as we look at priorities moving forward, the money that was going in that direction, we we needed to rethink. And in fact, as part of the plan, we recommended essentially cutting out that program. I think there's a consensus to do that. So part of it's shifting um, funds um,
1: from mobile to land to landline.
0: Well. This is an interesting so question. Thing? I would say that that program, which was called the c e t c for competitive eligible um telecommunications carriers, it was really designed to make sure that universal service did not um kind of reinforce a monopoly and I think that's a very admirable goal and I think it was very helpful uh for several years in doing that um you mean but totally I think that beginning of the program? Well, at the beginning of the program right uh, but I'm not sure it's now needed, and I think that you know. Part of the problem of Washington, frankly, is you know you, de- you design a program, you do it, and um, you know every business has to change, and and people um, there's so many political consequences of change that uh, it's, it makes it more difficult to do. But I don't you know I don't regret that we did the program. I just think we should honestly look at it and say, you know, is it really the priority for today in the year 2011? A very different market. Than what we saw when when Reed and I were at the FCC and we were designing this program in the wake of the 1996 Act, you know, really different market. Uh, I, I think every single one of your listeners communicates very differently, using different kinds of devices and different kinds of technology than they did in 1996. You know, the, the Universal Service Program should be no, it should not be immune to changes that result from the changes in the market. So, so one other thing is about shifting dollars in that way. A um, second thing is certain kinds of reforms. For example, uh, should you fund somebody when they're facing a competitor? That's, that's an issue that's raised. Uh, Intercarrier compensation, which is how the networks compensate each other, is a very complicated thing. I don't want to go into, but but the system is currently irrational, and part of the changes that are being proposed is how to how to address that irrationality. These were all, um, you know, the they drive lawyers and economists crazy. They also help pay for a lot of lawyers and economists in D.C. the as we think about these things. But um, uh, but but those are the kinds of things were uh, that the FCC will be be looking at. But at the at the big question to me is how do we have a system that very efficiently collects and distributes money for the purposes for public purposes, not private purposes, for public purposes. And a, there's a public purpose in making sure that every American has access to a broadband network. Of course, you have to define what that broadband network is. What are the characteristics of it? And you and I have debated this before. I'm happy to debate it again. Um, <laughs> but but you know one of the one of the most important decisions the government has to make is what are they what are they funding? What networks are we funding? Are we saying that every American should have access to We say broadband, but what we mean is a certain megabit speed down, a certain speed up, certain characteristics. Uh, So those are the kinds of things we have to decide.
1: Right. And if I'm going back, I think if I follow this discussion. um, You're saying that in the beginning the idea was to prevent monopolies. I mean, one of the goals. Well,
0: the goal of the competitive eligible telecommunications company program was to prevent universal service from being used to reinforce a monopoly.
1: Um, if that were the case, in the, in does, the voice
0: business, and that, this right. was 1996.
1: But if that's the case, how do we get to a point where um, AT and T and Verizon get over half of the, the the high cost fund? I mean, don't they get something like two point three or four billion out of the four billion that's set aside for that? And I consider them to be you know, if not a true monopoly, they definitely have, you know, an incredibly domineering position in a truckload of markets. Yeah. And and um, they're on the front arguing for, you know, from, from what I'm reading, reform that in in the end will just maintain that particular status quo.
0: Well, um first of all I think your number's wrong, though I I have to say this is not what I've been looking at over the last year, and therefore it could be that my memory is wrong or my numbers are wrong. Uh, and if so, no, I'm I'll just estimating.
1: Oh, I know there was an article yeah. that said. No, no, I, but
0: actually, one of the things I remember in September of '09, when we were looking at this as part of the plan, um, what we found was that order of magnitude, eighty um, percent. Of the lines that were not capable of delivering four down, one up, were controlled by AT&T, Verizon, or Quest, the three kind of remaining baby bells, Mm -hmm. but that they were getting about a third of the money. So in other words, there was an asymmetry in where the need was. Now, you can say it's because AT&T and Verizon, they don't care about rural people. I don't think that's right. I think it's, you know, look, these are businesses. Um, they need to make a return they 're going to invest where it makes sense to invest and and we have to design programs that understand that and what really was going on is that we there the, you know people talk about the rural urban divide the The truth of the matter was that we had a rural rural divide, that is to say that there were a category of phone companies uh generally smaller, wonderful people they serve their community well but let's but let 's understand what 's been going on by virtue of the government program. And by virtue of the fact that we pay them on a rate of return basis, which I personally have philosophical problems with, I don't think the government should ever guarantee a return to a private. I don't think a government should guarantee a um, permanent profitability of a private company. Reasonable minds can differ about that. I just happen to think that that's not the appropriate role of government, and the government should not protect companies from changes in technology. And right. that's effectively what we're doing. And so what we're essentially saying is that for in certain communities, uh, we are going to pay these companies uh, enough so that they can build a Maserati uh, for which they will offer the service of a Mercedes. And because of the subsidy, they will offer the price of a Corolla. It will be offered at a price of a Corolla. And for other rural residents, we're going to say walk. That's what I mean about the irrationality of the system. Right. Now, what the small guys say is, well, wait a minute, you're giving money to a bunch of big guys. And my attitude is it's not about whether we give money to big guys or little guys. It's about are we serving the uh, the end customer, and are we also serving those who contribute to the plan? You know, we're charging every American who pays a phone bill effectively um Uh, We're charging them so that we subsidize others. Well, I'm okay with that as long as everybody's getting the benefit from it. And I think the way the current system works uh, isn't really the most efficient way to to get that benefit to everybody. And and that's what needs to be changed. I'm not troubled by AT&T and Verizon getting more if they are actually using it for the purpose of of building out uh, new broadband networks. What I had a problem with, and one of the things that we we recommended was greater control over, um, you know, frankly because of the way the system worked, both AT&T and Verizon were getting money for which they needed to do nothing, and I think that will that should be fixed, and that will be fixed. Um, and I
1: think that is that is one of the points that sends people's blood pressure to the roof. It isn't yeah, right. um, that they get it, but it's like, what do we get for it? And um, you know this makes sense. And I would also argue, as I look at people doing broadband projects, I think that there are a number of folks who are very happy to work with their a local provider that they've identified that's neither going to gouge them or forget them, um, because they are in essence wedded to the community because they feel part of the community. Right. And those to 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 those communities are different kinds of providers than the ones that basically are collecting a subsidy check for which they have to do little. So it's the guaranteed profit thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: right. um, yeah, but look, yeah.
0: Uh, but have be be—I—I I, you got to be real. There are—I've had—I've had a lot of meetings with small real phone companies. They're very good people. They provide a great service but they are kidding themselves when they say hey we're just a bunch of free market capitalists out here in rural america you know we hate regulation blah 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 they're kidding themselves they are essentially businesses that survive because of a government subsidy i'm not troubled by that i'm not morally upset by that but let's let's be realistic about what's going on and so they say we do a better job of serving Rural America than AT and Verizon. Well, of course you do. When you're getting as as one company gets seventeen thousand dollars a line per year subsidy, <laughs> you better be doing a better job, right? You know. Well, so, be,
1: but you know the thing that then comes to
0: mind. So I I, I think these guys attack AT and it's not look anyone who knows my history knows that my relationship with large companies is always a mixed thing um... i admire many things that they do but you know if we look back at the history of what we did during the Reed hunt time or even during the broadband plan you know i, I don't always accept a hundred percent what they tell me and i often have proposed um, policy solutions that they didn't like on the other hand when the small guys attack the big guys saying hey they're just big guys and they don't want to serve rural america we're the only ones who want to serve rural america well there's a reason for that. They're getting a huge subsidy to do it, and the big guys actually aren't getting that subsidy.
1: Well, actually, I would differ because I would say that maybe they're not getting that particular subsidy. But I yeah. know I just read an article not too long ago where – I don't know if it's BadgerNet, the the um, consortium that's set up in the state of Wisconsin. Right. But basically, AT&T gets – and again i'm going from memory but several thousand dollars for a particular customer as a as a subsidy so well um, no they
0: definitely get some subsidies but they don't get again relative to the number of lines that they control they get they get a less subsidy and you're absolutely right by the way the badgernet situation this really cracked me up because you had 100 i think the numbers are right 150 small rural phone companies complaining about money going into the research and education network in wisconsin and arguing that it's not appropriate for public money to be used to compete with private money. I when think indeed
1: many pub- private companies when, when are when indeed public money. many
0: of those private companies are getting public money. So look, I, these are all complicated situations. But on the other hand, let's start with reality. And, you know, it is a, it's it's amusing but it's also wrong for a company that is getting a lot of public money to complain that somebody else is getting some public money particularly when it's an institution like the University of Wisconsin which is a public institution
1: right so this actually one of the one of the questions you know burning on my mind is how do we shift the scales so that the community, the basically the people who are putting the money into the system, the people who don't have broadband, and the people who have to deal with whatever solution comes out the back end of all this reform, why are we not putting them in the equation more forcefully? And I put this to you again, and I'm not wanting, you know, I know you have a mission with Gig.U, but you also have a public. Position and people, you know, call you and they get quotes and I mean, you know, that, which
0: is fine. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, I I'm not being quoted much on universal service these days and is very conscious. I I gave I've given some speeches on it and everything that I'm telling you I've said before. But mm-hmm. I, I I really think the the debate on universal service, frankly, has moved beyond both um, my expertise and my time. Right. Uh, what I mean by that is we made a proposal in the um, in the plan. I like the proposal a lot. Uh, The principal author of it is still at the FCC, and she's a real wonderful public servant. Um, uh, But since that time, there have been a number of meetings by lots of different folks, and the FCC is now looking very closely at um, what to do about it. And I think there are proposals there that, frankly, I'm not, uh, you know, I've looked at them in broad strokes, but I have to tell you that when it comes to universal service, the devil is not just in the details, it's in the details of the details. So I don't really hold myself out as an expert on it anymore. I think the debates move beyond me. And and whereas some people call me up and chat with me about it, I don't have any public position. These are people who are calling lots of different people and and chatting about it. And I don't – you know, I'm not filing anything at the FCC. I'm not making speeches about it. I'm very focused on the Gig.U project, which is frankly something that the government isn't focused on. And that's fine. And I understand why they're not focused on it, but I think it's really important for the country.
1: Right. How do communities, you know, looking at this and looking at various people's comments and so forth and so on, how do the communities get inserted into the process? You know, I look at the list of who's having meetings with the FCC, and I see, you know, the large incumbents, and I see the the rural uh, telecom companies as a group, and I see all these, you know, all these forces arrayed into their sort of version of what the future should be, and then we have you know several very overworked, underfunded, but you know stout-hearted public advocacy folks. But I sort of feel like you know our side go. You know, if I look at the community, you know, if I look at it from a community perspective versus a private sector perspective, I feel like the the community side is very undergunned, and which is unfair. I mean, life is unfair, but what the hell? Um, yeah, life but, is unfair. But we – how yeah, do you get
0: to a better place? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, first of all, let's just be honest and admit that this is a problem of DC generally. That in almost every uh, debate, you're going to have um, uh, uh, certain organized forces, and then you're going to uh, that you know will have the lobbyists and and other sides that, that won't. Let us actually be—it's not just a problem of Washington; uh, it's a problem of change. You know, 500 years ago or whenever it was that Machiavelli wrote The Prince. Uh, he pointed out that change is the most difficult thing because those who are hurt by the change know their interests and are well organized to protect it, and those who benefit from change are often disorganized and and can't really see the benefit. And so that's a, just a you know that's just the way it is. I, I have to commend um, the FCC. Um, and, and by the way, I don't mean this just on a partisan basis. I, there are certain issues in which Kevin Martin and Michael Powell, I thought. Um, well, actually, I, 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 on every issue, I thought Michael Powell and Kevin Martin listened to public interest advocates. They were open about it. You know, I don't agree with every decision that they made, but I I know for a fact that both of them had lots of meetings with public interest advocates uh, and listened very carefully. I think that there were two honorable public servants um and uh i think the fcc as an institution both at the leadership level with chairman jenekowski and at uh with the other commissioners and at the staff level are very open to communities now you know um it's like we like we started you know life is unfair to a certain extent but these are, this, as an institution i will defend the fcc uh in my experience as not being closed minded as trying to find the right solution um, that's not to say that I agree with everything they've ever done. Far from it. Uh, and I think if you read the National Broadband Plan, what you're going to find is a lot of things that say, hey, the policy that's been this way is wrong and needs to change. And there are lots of reasons why it was wrong. But um, uh, I think that if communities want to weigh in, there's plenty of opportunity to do that. There's not a lot of time, but there's plenty of opportunities. And they ought to take good. advantage of that.
1: You know is an issue I heard there's a you know there's a, there's an open space for comments on you know what should be broadband speed and a number of really critical issues to the future of, of broadband that certain parties are trying to push for an early decision on you know to get it done by the sixth of September or whatever and you know and the more I look at these things and I, and you and I actually had this conversation too about you know there is the process, mm-hmm. but the process favors people who are local to washington and you know at, at some point someone's got to come up with i think some sort of um way of leveraging the communities better or more effectively maybe there's i don't know some equivalent of joan of arc or something i'm i'm not really sure and that's sort of you know and you've seen it from probably a lot of sides over a number of years you know, and, and, you know, I sort of throw these questions out to you to say, well, you know, what, what could be that way? Because I don't know if the way we're going now with the voices that need to be heard aren't just being drowned out. It's not necessarily the receptivity of the FCC or, you know, of, of the administration, but it's like, you know, you, you feel like you're going in and you're just outgunned, outmanned, megaphoned, you know, and so what's the solution? I mean, I, I – I, earlier talked about, you know, how the gig u uh gig dot you initiative is being uh presented, you know, you've got a mission and it's clear that the mission has value and it's achievable what the goals are. And um but I think that but the key word is catalyst. You know, maybe this becomes a catalyst. Not that you guys have to be the the leader per se, but that somehow communities will look at this and go, Ah, this is maybe how we Get a better handle, or a better positioning, or greater leverage in this discussion and in this reform process.
0: Yeah. Look, I I I have often advised uh, various folks on how to more effectively um, present their views and what arguments to make and all of that. Uh, but I I think that um, you know the most important thing is to uh, have. The desire and and the idea, and I just um, just because you lose doesn't mean the process was unfair. I've been involved in lots of different policy debates in my time. I've won some. I've lost some. You know, uh, one of the things I've noticed is that when people win, they think it's because. Uh, they're right, and when they lose, they think it's because it's unfair. <laughs> and and I, you know, and I I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. That's certainly the way I feel uh, whenever I've lost one. But um, but the, the truth is, you know, none of these things are accomplished in a day or at a particular moment in time, and it's an ongoing battle. And I would encourage everyone to, you know, you you have you you. If, if I recall correctly, I don't know want to speak for you you would like more universal fund universal service funds to go directly to communities well that's fine but you you need to file something with the FCC you need to go talk to the commissioners about it you need to probably try to line up a few advocates in Congress who agree with you um, uh, and you know that's just the way it, the the way the process works um, is that the best, I, I, the best path well, let's put it this way. I mean, it's not a criticism.
1: Um, I'm, not, I'm not asking that in a critical way. I'm just asking. Yeah. You know, so the person listening to this says, "Okay, so what?" I t- the takeaway from that is, we as communities need to find you know several people who will um, pull together a case, present a case, lobby in on behalf of the case to the powers that be.
0: Absolutely. Uh, look, w- during the broadband plan, we held you know 36 workshops. We had a bunch of public notices and, and all this. There was one academic who came to me and said, you know, you're, you're entirely wrong. You ought, to, you ought to do something completely different. I said, well, look, here, here, I disagree with you. And he said, well, I think you're wrong. I said, that's fine. Find a commissioner who agrees with you. Find a member of Congress who agrees with you. Find one. Um, and he interpreted this as me saying that it's all political. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that it is the nature of democracy, that if you are a lone voice, um, you may history may prove you to be right, you know, But if I'm making a prediction, I'm going to say you're not going to win one in a democracy if you can't get any support for it. So you've got to build support for it. That takes work. When I thought about the gig you thing, right, I could have just given a speech. But I decided to go talk to a bunch, a lot of different institutions because that's the way you get things done. You get people to support the idea. You get people to support the vision. You you organize. Um, it's not just about the idea. It's about who also believes in the idea. Some people think that there's something wrong with that. I happen to think there's something right with that. You know, there are certain kind of mantras that Reed and I had when we were at the FCC, and one of them was, if you can't borrow somebody else's army for a uh, for a particular policy issue, you might be wrong. In other words, if there's nobody who wants to stand up and say, "Hey, I think they're right," you might be wrong, even if you think you're right. Uh, if you can't get anyone to agree with you, so there's a lot of organizing that has to happen, but that's but that's fine.
1: And I can see where that that makes sense. I mean, I think the um, to to sum up maybe a number of folks uh, a position is that um, there is a lot of momentum behind being a large company that allows them to dictate terms of the engagement you know like say, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm reading all the back and forth uh, about the USF reform right. and there needs to be some sort of concerted effort to try to sway the tide and and maybe it's you know that time to sort of figure out that you know we will continue to 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 lose the battle on behalf of um the consumer side until something crystallizes in some meaningful way that allows them to to attack the system more effectively, efficiently or what have you.
0: Yeah, you know, I I I'm not sure I agree with that at all. Um Mark Cooper. Uh, represents it's either consumers union or it's the other consumer consumer organization, but he's a, he's a terrific advocate. He's a very, very smart able guy. We talked a bunch about universal service, Um, the plan that we put forward. He didn't agree with everything, but he thought it was generally a pretty good plan going forward. Um, You know, uh, there are other advocates who um, it's funny. They, they, they may have criticized it, but it actually was kind of based on some things that they said. Uh, there are some big companies who agreed with parts of it, and they disagreed with parts of it. I I, I just think that um, too often uh, people give up before the battle is really fought. You have to fight the battle. know, right? yeah. I mean, let's not kid ourselves here. Uh, but uh, but big companies, they do have a they they have a right. You know, I'm not. I disagree with Governor Romney's um, legal assessment of corporations being people. I don't think that is right, from either in a, a kind of legal jurisprudence manner, uh, nor do I agree with it philosophically. But I absolutely agree with their their right and indeed their duty to participate in a proceeding that greatly affects the way they run their business. Mm-hmm. So I'm not troubled by that. Um, uh you know and i but again i would defend the fcc as an institution that is their doors are open they're trying to be more transparent they're not always going to do something that you agree with or that i agree with but we shouldn't give up on them we should keep trying
1: and and keep the battle moving uh, the discussion moving forward right and um it will i guess it will prove interesting to see what happens in the end i mean my point you, I mean, you're right in assessing my point about communities needing to have a voice. It doesn't necessarily mean they have to get, like, physically a transference of dollars. That so that probably wouldn't necessarily in and of itself be a bad thing. But I think that if you look at the equation, you know, if I've got a town of 10,000 people, 10,000 people have contributed to universal service fund. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, having zero input on... What do they think the plan by the regional telco or the regional telco association versus uh, AT&T versus some guy that just you know woke up one day with an idea? You know, their inability to 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 us to to assign those dollars to a solution that makes sense for them, to me, is an inherent problem with this whole discussion. I mean, people are you know they, they talk in terms that the Irish folks can't understand. But it all seems to come down to, well, you know, the, the carriers have a voice because there's sort of this mindset, it seems to be, that this is their money. But it's not their money. They collect it. They collect it on behalf of the government mandating that they collect it. But it's not theirs. It's not – it isn't. It's it's basically every taxpayer. So well,
0: I, I obviously agree with you. And one of the things um, I've uh, – <laughs> Uh, I spent a lot of time I, – I think the two groups who were most unhappy with the plan were the broadcasters and uh, the rural telephone companies. Mm-hmm. And, again, I, I have a huge amount of respect for both groups of folks. I think they do a terrific public service. I think they're dedicated to what they do. I think they have their communities at heart. But the difference between us it was captured by you a second ago. The broadcasters believe they own the spectrum and that the spectrum is there to serve them. Uh, And behind a lot of the arguments that they make, you can find an underlying point of view that the government should not control what happens to the spectrum. They should control what happens to the spectrum. And obviously, there has to be give and take, but that's at the heart of that. And, And with the rural phone guys, they believe that the purpose of universal service is to enable them to offer a service. I believe that the purpose of universal service is for um, the entire country to be connected in whatever the most effective means not, uh, available is. And there's there's a subtle difference between those two positions. You know, it doesn't mean they're bad people. It doesn't mean that uh, they're destroying the country. Uh, it doesn't mean that they don't have their community interests at heart. It just means that there's a philosophical view as to the nature of the asset. And I think it has to serve the public, and they tend to think it's supposed to serve them.
1: Right. And I and I see the universal service fund as an asset, and yeah, so me, absolutely.
0: And you're absolutely right about that. Right, I agree so, 100%. So
1: let me talk about um, Gigu and one aspect of the universal service fund that I think is compatible, which is the E-rate program. Yeah. Because in some respects, the E-rate program is about using, you know, one or two of your primary institutions, your school systems, your library system.
0: Schools, and libraries, and healthcare facilities, but yeah. and healthcare.
1: That's right. That's right. But yeah. I think healthcare has a separate pot of money, isn't right, it? Right.
0: That's the rural healthcare fund. Okay. But it's kind of part of the same fund.
1: Right. So, <coughs> does, excuse me. Does the gig U, gig dot program have a way to um, leverage the e rate? You know, like again, if I'm a community, I'm responding to this RFI. You know, could I not look at this and go, well, you know, e rate just been reformed one round and hopefully there'll be another couple of rounds. But, you know, we can take this, you know, this university testbed idea, and we've got schools that, you know, provide coverage here, here, and here, you know, and let's start looking at how we can, again, make these come together to support the whole of the community.
0: Um, I, You know, we're on radio, and no one can see me smiling. Um, <laughs> I'll just make two things. You know, number one, um, my children are really sick and tired of my telling them how I helped connect every classroom in America. Um, it is probably the thing that I'm most proud of from my time with working mm-hmm. with Reed and the FCC. Um, I think the E-rate, though it certainly has flaws, as every program does, uh, and certainly you know as you look at it, there are things you could do to reform it, and some of what we suggested in the plan. But boy, it was a good, it was a great thing. It was a, it was the right vision. Uh, I think it was well executed. I'm very proud of it. Mm-hmm. And I think but before we had done that, there would have been a digital divide in this country that was much more problematic. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. But having said that, the second point I'll make is uh, I would love it if the world were such that we could have found the kind of money that would have absolutely guaranteed the success of the Gig.U project um, in the public sector. But having said that, we're not doing that. And so mm-hmm. the answer to your question directly, clearly, unequivocally is No.
1: <laughs>
0: the Gig.U project is designed to focus on how do we close the private investment gap by communities and universities doing various things with assets that they have, and the companies hopefully seeing that there's a benefit to invest into the future in a way that they don't see it today. Uh, how do we improve that business case? now? And I, and I don't just mean the existing incumbents. I mean any any company. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, I, I just want to be clear. This isn't about public money. It's about private money, and hopefully, we'll be able to succeed with that. If we, if not, we'll we'll try to figure it out.
1: But it can be partnered with with public resources. And public There's no funding. doubt.
0: Uh, let me also be clear uh, that that's it. That's absolutely true. The business case for Gig U and for a private sector um, provider is improved, no doubt, by the E-rate funds that already went into the classrooms. Um, I also think in a number of cases it's probably true that the business case was improved by some of the BTOP funding, uh, the Broadband uh, Technology Opportunity Program that um, was part of the uh, Recovery Act. Uh, that because of that the backhaul costs are going to be lower and that's going to improve uh, the business model for various folks. But um, and and so yes, in, and this goes to something you were saying earlier. You really want to piece together lots of different things to uh, in a very creative way to improve that business case. But I just want to make it clear that we as Gigot, you are not saying, hey, give us a piece of the the e-rate.
1: Right. And, and I okay, so I can understand that. There is that dichotomy, but it's also a part of, you know, you guys are focused and you have a plan, and it is a valid plan that makes sense. I think from my my con, uh, consult to communities is, you know, look at that and ring it in and look at a bigger picture and figure out how you can create a quilt that will ultimately, in the end, result in more broadband for more folks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, we have a minute to go, so I want to, you know, first... Blair, thank you. You've uh you, you hung in there for a good ninety minutes and I appreciate it. My my uh, audience appreciates it very much. I think it's been very helpful and informative and a lot of food for thought in there, and I wish you guys all the best luck with uh with gig you. Gig dot So I'll get that dot thing in there eventually. Um, uh uh-huh. I also want to thank our sponsors, Hiawatha Broadband Communications, for uh being our first sponsor and, and getting this show up off the off the ground and moving. Uh, it's Jay Ovitori, who's there handling our online uh, activities, and finally our media sponsors: GigaOm, Broadband Communities Magazine, and MiniWireless.com. Thank you to everyone for listening, and again, thank you to Blair for being my guest. And just go make more broadband happen. Have a great, great. day. Great, thank you
0: so much. Talk You're to right. you later. Right. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye bye.